This morning we're going to look first at Genesis and then at the book of Revelation. We talked yesterday how Genesis has a beginning such as no human mind could ever surpass. To begin this book of the ages with the words, In the beginning God, what a grand beginning. You cannot, if you had a million years, think up a better commencement than that. Of course, the word Genesis means beginning. That's the meaning of the word. And you may not be aware of the fact that when you come to the New Testament, if you pick up a Greek New Testament, the way it reads there is um, the genesios of Jesu Christos. The Biblos genesios of Jesu Christos. That's the way the New Testament begins, which means the book of Genesis of Jesus. It's translated in our versions usually is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. But as you look at it in the, in the Greek language, it is saying the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ. So both testaments, in a sense, uh, begin with Genesis. Thanks, Jill, very much. What a scribe, eh? She can do everything I can do and better and a million things I can't do. And there's a wife for you. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask you this question. As you think of how the New Testament uses this chapter, what is its chief burden? Let me remind you of a few texts. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. That's Ephesians 5.8. Modelled on this, the darkness and then light. God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has what? Shone in our hearts to give what? The light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ. Another text says, God has called us out of darkness, what? Into his marvellous light. All these are references to Genesis 1. But there's one you know better. There's one you all know much better than any I've quoted. In the beginning. Where's that? Yes. The beginning of Gospel of John. In the beginning. If you study the Gospels, they all have a reference to the beginning at the commencement of each gospel, Mark begins the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how Mark's gospel begins. There's a genesis, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Luke begins his gospel in the first few verses by, by saying, we have studied what's been known from the beginning about the events of Jesus Christ. So you've got Matthew talking about the book of Genesios, of Jesu Christos, the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ. Mark talks about the beginning of the gospel. Luke talks about the things known from the beginning. John says, in the beginning. So the New Testament is trying to tell us that this chapter is not just to remind us that all things come from the Creator. They're not the product of a chance evolution. But this chapter is a Bible in miniature. The whole Bible is in this chapter. The whole plan of salvation is in this chapter. And the New Testament texts are the key. You must always use your margins to find how the New Testament uses the Old Testament passage. And when you read in the New Testament, God has called us out of darkness into his marvellous light. When we find in the beginning used with the coming of the second Adam as well as the coming of the first Adam. Then we have the hint that we've symbolised here. Here are the symbols that are found at the beginning of the Bible. I'm sorry, not all of you can see it clearly, so I'll, I'll call it out. First of all, you have the very 
synonym of all holiness, God. Begins with holiness, Genesis 1.1. Then you have a picture of chaos, without form and void. Well, that's the way you and I are when we come into the world spiritually. We're chaotic, we're sinful, without form and void. That's the symbol of sin when it talks of chaos. That's the very essence of unregenerate humanity. Before the light of God in the gospel comes, we are just a chaos. So the second picture after holiness is the opposite, sin. The earth is a chaos, a chaotic mess, without form and void. Darkness clothes it. That's me coming into the world, spiritually chaotic, clothed in darkness. What happens next? Unless this happens, I'm sunk. The Holy Spirit broods. That's what the Hebrew word means. The Holy Spirit broods like a mother dove trying to generate life. The Holy Spirit broods over this chaotic mess. And dear friends, none of us ever decided to become Christians. What happened was the Holy Spirit moved upon us and we yielded. That's what theologians call prevenient grace. God's always the first mover. It never originates with us. God is the first mover. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. It all begins with him. So the Holy Spirit moves, Genesis 1-2. Then the word is preached, and God said. Ten times you have references to the word of God in this chapter. And God said. And God said. Here are the first ten commandments. Here are the ten commandments of creation. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let the waters bring forth. And God said, let us make man. So here's the word of God proclaimed. The Spirit and the Word always go together. Don't separate them. The Word without the Spirit is dead. The Spirit without the Word is dumb. Distrust any teaching that ignores the Spirit or ignores the Word. Any teaching that puts its dependence on the Spirit alone is contrary to Holy Writ. And any teaching that thinks that with the Bible alone, without the Spirit, you can get far, is also wrong. They begin together, and they always go together. The Spirit and the Word. Years ago, centuries ago, a great Protestant by the name of Chillingsworth said the Bible and the Bible only is the religion of Protestants. He's wrong. The Bible does need an interpreter. The Roman Catholic Church is correct. But the interpreter is not the gentleman on the Tiber. The interpreter is the Holy Spirit. The Bible does need an interpreter. He who gave the word. But his interpretation is always in harmony with what he has said. So truth is found from the objective content of the word outside of me, witnessed by the subjective testimonium of the spirit. You remember when John Wesley's father was dying, he said, John, he said, John, the inner witness, John, the inner witness. It's too often been forgotten in Christianity. But Paul has a lot to say about the spirit witnesses with our spirit, that we are the sons of God. There is a subjective element, but it always confirms the word. So this first chapter warns us against heresies that will deflect us from the scripture or from the spirit. We need both. Then the next thing is light. There's no light without the spirit. There's no light without the word. They're what bring light and light always brings separation. You know, they said about Jesus, he's a devil because he divides the people. But whenever there's light, it divides. Light divided the night from the day, the darkness from the light, you see. And whenever truth comes in, it causes division. 
It is not a cause for thanksgiving if the Christian church is peaceful. Wherever the word of God is studied, new light will emerge that will cause discussion. It should be done in the spirit of Christ and there's then no harm. But because of our prejudices and because of our traditions, what happens is anger and there's fighting and there are divisions, you see. But there it is. Light brings separation. Then on the third day, isn't it interesting? On the third day, the earth comes up out of the waters. The waters in the Bible are frequently used as a symbol of death. We sing about it when we talk, so talk about beyond Jordan's banks. You know, on Jordan's banks we stand. We've come through the, the river of death. But on the third day, the earth is resurrected out of the waters. The number three in the Bible is frequently used with resurrection. What happens then? Then it begins to bring forth fruit. And after reference to fruit, we have reference to shining lights, the sun and the moon and the stars, until mankind coming back in the image of God enters into Sabbath rest, symbolizing holiness and peace. So it ends where it begins. Here you have the whole Bible. Here you have the whole story of conversion. I begin a chaotic mess. Darkness rules my spirit. Then the Spirit of God moves upon me. The Word of God comes to me. That light causes me to separate things in my life. I have to make a lot of changes. My mind goes back to all the changes that took place when I learnt the gospel of God. And you must, in your memory, go back and see the tremendous changes that happened. Then there's a resurrected life. You're a new person in Christ. Not perfect, but a resurrected one nonetheless. First you bring forth the fruit of repentance and sorrow for sin and love for goodness. And then as you grow, you become shining lights in God. Shining lights. That's what the New Testament says all the way. We are God's shining lights. You are the light of the world. See? And ultimately we're to come back into the image of God like Adam, like Eve. And then we have rest. Then there's holiness. So the very first chapter is a miniature Bible. The profundity of Scripture. None of us can depth it. Notice that the emphasis in the New Testament is not trying to solve the questions we raise. Today in the 20th century, and only in this century, in the last part of the 19th, have questions arisen about science and creation. The Bible's not interested in those. The Bible is given for practical purposes. Take it as it reads for practical purposes, for spiritual things, and we'll have no problems. Try to find there what it hasn't promised, and we'll be in trouble all the way. Don't try to reconcile it with all the theories of science. Science changes its theories with great regularity. That doesn't mean that all science is wrong. Sometimes fundamentalists have said things they've had to change. Fundamentalists have tried to teach a 6,000-year-old earth. The Bible does not teach that. But the Bible certainly doesn't teach a chance evolution either. So we need to be careful. The, the word of the New Testament is the Scripture is inspired that the man of God may be perfect, furnished under every good work, because the Scriptures are profitable for doctrine for instruction in righteousness. These are written, you might know, Jesus is the Christ. That's the purpose of it. So when the New Testament uses the opening of the Bible, it uses it spiritually, religiously. That's the purpose of the book. That's the purpose of the book. Not to tell us how the heavens go, but how to go to heaven. That's its purpose. All right, let's uh, turn the page. When you come to chapter 2, you have the story of the first Adam. And you'll notice that um, it says in chapter 2, toward the end of it, verse 21, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, 
And while he slept, he took out one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, brought it to the man. Here's a picture of the first Adam and his bride. And he's put to sleep and his side is opened. As you think of the New Testament record, and you come to Calvary, the second Adam was put to sleep too. And his side was opened. And that which came from his side was blood and water. Blood for the atonement for our sins. The water of the symbol of the regenerating Holy Spirit, which makes the bride of Christ. So the first Adam's bride that comes after he goes to sleep and has his side opened, prefigures the bride of the second Adam, us. Because he fell asleep on the cross and his side was opened. Don't lose the place in the beginning of the Bible, but look at with me at Genesis, uh, John chapter 19. And verse 41, in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb where no one had ever been laid. Why does John go out of his way to tell us that in the place where Jesus was crucified there was a garden? Now isn't it true that most times you hear about Calvary you don't hear about a garden? Think of all the times you've heard the cross preached on. How many times have you been told it was in the centre of a garden? I don't think I've ever heard it, but it's here. Now why does John say in the place where Jesus was crucified there was a garden? Because he's reminding us that the cross is a tree of life and a tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's why. You remember sin began when Satan said, take, eat of the tree. So Jesus comes millenniums later and he says to his disciples, take, eat. But it's of the new tree of life. The cross is a tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's at the cross we see the goodness of God and the evil of the human heart. When we look at Calvary, we should think of the crucified and the crucifiers. The crucified is God himself. The crucifiers, us. Our sins were the nails. Our unbelief was the spear. We are the crucifiers. And so the cross is both a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but it's also a tree of life. Both the trees of Eden. You remember it says in the record in Genesis 2, the trees are in the center of the garden, in the midst when you read the story of the cross, you read that phrase again. And they crucified him, Jesus in the midst. When a thief partook of a tree in Eden, he was thrown out of paradise. When a thief partook of this tree of the cross, what was he promised? Paradise. Please get the point. When you see Christ on the cross and understand what it means, you enter paradise. When you see Christ on the cross, realize he was there for you. Paradise is yours. A thief was thrown out of paradise because he partook of a tree. We get back into paradise by partaking of the tree. Christ is our tree of life. Christ is our tree of knowledge of good and evil. So John, who's the one that talks about the opening of the side, John, the one who mentions the garden, is saying to us, go back and read Genesis 2. Go back and read Genesis 2. That's what he's saying. The similarities really began in the Gethsemane story. Um, Arthur Pink is a man who often writes on typology. And in one of his books, in talking about Gethsemane, he made these points. I scribbled them into my Bible. 
He contrasts the Garden of Gethsemane. See, the Garden of Gethsemane merges with the Garden of the Cross, and they both reflect the Garden of Eden. And this is what Pink said. In Eden, all was delightful. In Gethsemane, all was terrible. In Eden, Adam and Eve parleyed with Satan. In Gethsemane, the last Adam sought his father. In Eden, Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, the second Adam suffered. In Eden, Adam fell. In Gethsemane, the Redeemer conquered. In Eden, the conflict was by day. In Gethsemane, the conflict was by night. In Eden, Adam fell before Satan. In Gethsemane, the soldiers fell before the second Adam. In Eden, the race was lost. But in Gethsemane, the great race was saved because Gethsemane is part of the Calvary event. That's where he began to die. That's why he sweat drops of blood. The death began in Gethsemane. That's where our sin was laid upon him, right there. In Eden, Adam took the fruit from Eve's hand. In Gethsemane, Christ received the cup from his father's hand. In Eden, Adam hid himself. In Gethsemane, Christ showed himself. In Eden, God sought Adam. In Gethsemane, the last Adam sought God. From Eden, Adam was driven. From Gethsemane, Christ was led. In Eden, the sword was drawn. In Gethsemane, it was sheathed. Remember, the Lord said to Peter, put that sword back into its sheath when he tried to use weapons. Both are trees of the knowledge of good and evil. Both trees are said to be in the midst. The Saviour on Calvary stands between God and man, between the Father and the Spirit, between life and death, between time and eternity, between law and grace, between mercy and judgment, and so on. God planted the first tree, man planted the second one, and so on. It's not chance, is it? The Bible is a wonderful mosaic. And you cannot understand the beginning without understanding the end. There are two types of structures, architectonic structures. One is where you're constantly building what always proceeds. The other is where the whole plan is arranged so that everything is integrated and interdependent, one upon another. So the last is dependent on the first, but the first is dependent on the last. The Bible is that second type of structure. It is also integrated. That the first is dependent on the last, as surely as the last is dependent on the first. Well, coming back to Genesis, look again, please, now at chapter 3, and observe that uh, some of the symbols used in connection with sin itself. You'll notice in verse 7 it says, The eyes of them both were opened, they knew they were naked. So when we come to the Gethsemane story, the Son of God is exposed in sheer nakedness because of our shame. We think of him with a loincloth. There was no loincloth. That's just because of the squeamishness of medieval artists. The nakedness that came because of the fall our Lord bore for you and for me. When you come down to verse 17, it says, Curses the ground because of you. It should remind you of Galatians chapter 3 and verses 10 to 13 where it says, And Christ was made a curse for us. Then it says in verse 18, Thorns and thistles it will bring forth. So he wears a crown of thorns. And it says in verse 19, the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. And he sweats great drops of blood. So all the elements of the curse, including the flaming sword that's mentioned at the end of the chapter, are replayed at Calvary. There he takes suffering and death. There he takes the sword. There he takes the curse. There he has the emblems of the sweat and the thorns. So what the first Adam brought, the second Adam atoned for. All the signs of ultimate salvation are implicit in the sentence delivered 
because of the sin of man. Let's come to chapter 5. It begins with the expression, this is the book of the generation of Adam. The next time that that sort of language is used is the beginning of the New Testament. This is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. Now this chapter lists ten patriarchs. Most of their names are not debatable. One or two of them are debatable. The meaning of Canaan is debated by scholars. But back in the time of the Reformation, a reformer by the name of Ursinus, U-R-S-I-N-U-S, in the Heidelberg Catechism pointed out that the meaning of these names are also a whole Bible. The names run like this. Adam, Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. And I repeat that the name, the meaning of most of the names is undebated, but one or two of them are debatable. But this is how the reformer uh, listed them back there in the, in the Heidelberg Catechism. He says, this is the whole Bible. It's the whole story. And he gave the meanings of the names and then read it out and put it in the catechism like this. And I'll fill in one or two words so you get the chain of it. Adam, man. Seth, appointed. Man was appointed. Then it says, Enos, wretched, dying. But man fell and became mortal dying. Canaan, lamenting. But Mahalalel, the blessed God, Jared, shall descend. Jared is the root for Jordan, the descending river. You know, it falls hundreds of uh, feet in just a matter of miles. Jared. So what have we got so far? Adam, man, Seth, appointed, uh, becomes wretched and dying, Enos, lamenting, Canaan. But the blessed God, Mahalalel, shall descend, Jared, Enoch means teaching, teaching and dedicated. Methuselah, his death shall bring, sometimes translated the man of the dart, what comes at the end of the throwing. But see, Methuselah lived the longest of all people because when he was to die, the flood would come. His death would bring the flood. That's why he lived the longest, showing the patience of God. His death shall bring, Lamech means power, and Noah means rest. So in, in, in essence, it's saying man was appointed but he became wretched by the fall. But the blessed God doesn't leave him alone. The blessed God will come down, teaching and dedicated. And his death, God's death, shall bring power and rest. Observe the Genesis chapter 1, the Genesis story of creation finished with rest. Now chapter 5 of Genesis finishes with, with rest. When you read the story of the flood, how does it finish? And the ark rested where? On Mount Ararat. Rest, rest, rest. God is trying to tell us that the chaos of our lives, and life is chaotic for most people, unless you've withdrawn from the battle, unless you're just watching on the sidelines. If you're really involved in life, life is fairly chaotic. Constantly changing, constantly threatening, day and night, pain and joy, that is living. But God is saying, listen, if you're right with me, if you'll accept my love, rest can be yours. It's all intimations of Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Come unto me and I will give you rest. I should have mentioned when we talked about the trees in Genesis 2, the symbolism of the tree is carried on further. If you look at Genesis 18, I think it's Genesis 18, here's the next time that a tree is mentioned in the Bible.
Here in Genesis 18, he asks the angels, Abraham does, to rest themselves under the tree. Verse 4. Let a little water be fetched, wash your feet, rest yourselves under the tree. I think I was reminded of the passage because we're talking about rest. The first time we meet a tree, it becomes the place of the curse. The next time we meet it, it becomes the place of rest. Let's see the next time after that. The next time a tree is mentioned is in Exodus 15. Have a look there. Exodus 15. It says in verse 23, they came to Marah. They couldn't drink the water because it was bitter. It was named Marah. The people murmured, what will we drink? The Lord, Moses cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Now a tree is the agent of transformation. Tree, first of all, the curse. Secondly, the place of rest. Thirdly, a place of transformation. Now, lastly, let's look at a reference in Second Kings in chapter 6. Look at these early verses. The sons of the prophet said to Elisha, the place where we dwell is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan. Each of us get a log and make a, make a place for us to dwell there. He answered, go. One of them said, be pleased to go with your servant. And he answered, I'll go. And he went with them. They came to Jordan. They cut down trees. And one was filling a log and his axe had fell into the water. And he cried out, alas, my master, it's borrowed. And the man of God said, well, fill it. He showed him the place. And he cuts off a stick from a tree. And he throws it in. Notice he cut it off. Do you remember where the Bible used that expression about cut off? After three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. So here, a part of a tree is cut off and it's thrown into the waters and the iron did swim. Now let me give you an explanation of it. This too is a miniature Bible. There was a time when the angel said to God, Lord, what about another world? He said, all right, let's make another world. And so they all set out to make another world. And God called the man Adam. He said, now Adam, I'm lending you this world. Take good care of it. But alas, he threw the world into the waters of Jordan. But then the Son of God, the second Adam, came and was cut off. The branch of the Lord, the tree of righteousness, went down into those same waters of death and took up the world and brought it up again. And the admonition to us is about this redemption. Take it up to you. Take it up. Receive it. That's how it finishes. Receive it. What the tree has done. So the tree is the place of the curse because of disobedience. Then it becomes the place of rest for the man of faith, Abraham. Then it becomes the agent of transformation when the bitter waters become sweet. You know, life's full of bitter waters. Unless we put the cross in those waters, you won't be able to receive it. I love the words of Christ where he says to Pilate, you could have no power at all over me unless we're given thee from above. You've got to learn to say that about a lot of things in life. You could have no power at all against me unless it was given thee from above. Think of the words in Gethsemane. The cup my father has given thee, shall I not drink it? Not the cup Judas has given me. Not the cup the Pharisees have given me. The cup my father has given me. God does not initiate evil, but evil doesn't touch the child of God without God's permission. There's our rest. That's the principle of the cross. That's what the cross is. That wasn't a chance. It wasn't a coincidence. God takes the evil and transforms it. That's what the story of Mara is all about. Not only that, he brings us up, he elevates us, he takes us up to glory. Well, let's go back and take one or two other things and we can only really make a start. Look please the story of the flood. I want you to notice a few things. In chapter 6, 
You have a world here, the days of Noah. Let me mention a few things that represent the days of Noah. It was a distinguished age for inventions and science. We're told how Cain's descendants way down the line towards the time of the flood invented weapons and music and the organ and all sorts of marvellous inventions. Read it there in Genesis 4. Now the descendants of Cain down the line, getting near the days of the flood, brought forth marvellous inventions. So the days of Noah were distinguished for, for arts and sciences and invention. They were days of unbelief. They knew not till the flood came. They wouldn't believe. They were days of violence. It says violence filled the earth. It says about these days, they were days of sensualism and divorce. They took the wives of all of which they chose. They were days of intemperance. Christ particularly pensioned. They spent their days just eating and drinking. They were days of worldliness. When they weren't eating and drinking, they were buying and selling, planting and building. The people were forewarned, but few believed. And there came a moment when it was too late to be saved. It is, of course, a preview of the end of the world, as Christ told us. The end of the world will be characterized by great advances in technology and science, by violence. The world has never been so violent as now. And one of the main agents of it is television. I remember how I loved the movies as a child. But the movies before 1955 and the movies after 1955 are two different things. When they took away the Hayes uh, Reviewing Committee and Hollywood was allowed to do what it liked, it has become so violent and so immoral and so impure. It's one of the great agencies in making the world like Noah's day, a time of violence. Well, let's look at something a little more cheering. In chapter 6, we notice how God chooses his people. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Here are the chosen people of God. Verse 7, it emphasizes that they are called. Verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. The Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I've seen your righteous before me. Now they're called. Verse 5, we find that as believers they are obedient. Noah did all the Lord commanded him. When you come down, please, to verse 16, they're separated. They enter into the ark and they're separate from everybody else. And then they're sealed. The Lord shut him in. These chosen, called, obedient, separated believers are sealed. And then they're buried. The waters come down from above. The waters come up from below. The waves toss over the boat. They're buried. But then they're resurrected because God remembers them. Chapter 8 and verse 1. And they are elevated it tells in verse 4, to rest on the mountains of Ararat. So here again is the whole Christian life. God calls us. We're chosen. We're chosen first. He calls us. As believers, we obey him. That leads to separation. He seals us by his Holy Spirit. We see that we're buried with Christ, and then we rise again in him. And ultimately, at his coming, that becomes not just legal, but actual in the great resurrection day. There's so much we could talk about in Genesis. Let me mention one or two you may not have heard of so much. You remember the story we talked about yesterday where Isaac's under the sentence of death three days, carries the wood on his back, his father's with him. But the next chapter pictures Isaac at home and he's waiting there while a bride is found. And so the father's servant, who's in charge of all the father's goods, goes to a far country to seek a bride for Isaac. And the question is asked, wilt thou go? And she says, I will. And so she goes back over the trackless desert, the hot burning sands. 
regardless of the dangers and the problems and the thirst and the hunger. They travel these hundreds of miles across the desert sands and then as she draws near, Isaac is coming out to meet her. He's been in the fields meditating and he lifts up his eyes and the camels are coming and he sees his bride and he takes her into his father's house. My friends, after our Isaac was offered up on the cross, God sent the Holy Spirit who is in possession of all the divine things to draw out a bride for the crucified. That's us. And so the Holy Spirit comes down here and moves upon each heart. Wilt thou? Wilt thou? And when we say I will, begins our pilgrimage. It's a Canaan pilgrimage, a desert pilgrimage to Canaan. Hot, tiring, weary. You'll often feel like giving up, but it's worth it because our Christ will come to meet us and he'll gather us up and he'll take us home to his father's house. Let's look at one more and I must stop. Uh, I want you to think of the, the sons of Jacob. You probably have not heard this one. Genesis 29, beginning at verse 31. The Lord saw that Leah was hated. He opened her womb, and Rachel was, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. Now, you remember the, name, the son's names are all in these next chapter and a half. Reuben, then it mentions Simeon in 33, then it mentions Levi in 34, then it mentions Judah in 35, and then in chapter 30 it mentions Dan in verse 6, and uh, Naphtali, and Zebulon, and Gad, and Asher. Now let me give you the essence of these. Then Joseph, and then finally the last child she has, she has as she's dying, do you remember where she was? Bethlehem. And she calls this child of her dying, Benoni, son of my sorrow. Now, her husband says, no, we can't have that. We'll call him Benjamin, son of the right hand. So here is one who's born at Bethlehem, who's a son of sorrow, who then becomes a son of the right hand. What a beautiful picture of our Lord, born at Bethlehem, son of sorrow on Calvary. Son of the right hand. But all these names tell a story. These names put together also tell the whole story of salvation. Like this. Like Genesis 5. Like other parts of Genesis. All the Bible is there. Just as every atom reflects the universe, every sizable section of scripture is a miniature Bible. So when you put these names together, this is what you get. Reuben is the first one. And it means behold the son. The Christian life begins with regeneration. The angels look down, they say, behold, a son, a daughter, reborn. Except a man be born again. So the Christian life begins when heaven looks down and sees us as a child of theirs. Behold, a son, a daughter. What characterizes such people? Simeon means hearing, hearing God's word. When you're born again, you listen to what God is saying. What's your experience? The next part, Levi. That means joined, union, abide in me and I in you. Union. Those that are regenerate, that listen to the word, are one with Christ. They're united with him. And what do they do? Judah means praise. Their life is a praise to God. Ultimately, they will judge the world and angels. That's the meaning of Dan, judge. Zebulun means dwelling, dwelling. We dwell in the secret place of the Most High. Naphtali has to do with service. Gad has to do with conquest. Asher has to do with happiness. All these things are describing the Christian life. Having been appointed of God to be judges of the world and judges of angels, we dwell with him at his right hand. We become servants of God and man. We become more than conquerors like Gad. We become happy in Christ because of the joy in Jesus. And then finally it talks about Joseph, 
who is the great adder, always increasing. Of the increase of our government, there will be no end. Because this is Christ's story too. So even in the names of Genesis, behold a son, there's our birth. Listening to the word of God, joined to God, dwelling at his right hand, servants of God and man. See, the whole story of salvation is wrapped up there.